Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 7 in the book of 1 Peter entitled, Christ Died to Bring You to God, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, these are some of the most interesting verses that Peter wrote. And on the basis of this and maybe one other text in Ephesians came the concept of Jesus's descent to hell, which I do not believe Peter's teaching here. What he is teaching is that Christ died for our sins to bring us to God And he's writing to a persecuted minority of oppressed people, of Christians who are living as aliens and strangers in this world, and telling them how they should behave in such a caustic environment, uh, being surrounded and oppressed by people who do not share their faith. And he says, Jesus died to free you from sin, so don't sin with them. Do the right thing. Do good things as you're being persecuted. Be ready to share your faith, to give a reason for the hope that you have. Don't do evil. Don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but with blessing. Uh, Act like Christ who suffered so well and entrusted himself to God. And understand that Christ once for all atonement, atoned for sins like you commit regularly, but also that some of your oppressors have committed in that they may later come to faith in Christ. Then he cites the example of, of Noah who was surrounded by hostile people and built an ark to save his family, and so very, very few were saved. So also, we need to understand we're surrounded by enemies. Very few of them maybe are going to be saved, but we need to be faithful as Noah was. That's the text we're going to look at today. Very good. Well, so that we can hear what the text says, I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Andy, as we begin, what's the connection between verse 17, where we concluded last time, and verse 18, where we begin today? Well, I think um, Peter is in, in a flow of argumentation in which he's talking about what it's like to be an alien and a stranger in this world and to be surrounded by hostility. And the, the tendency is going to be to retaliate. When someone strikes you on one cheek, strike them on one cheek or strike even harder. Uh, and instead, he wants these Christian people to be good witnesses and to do good and to melt the opposition by their good behavior. And to say, usually this is going to work. Very few people are gonna want to abuse you who are doing them good. There are some that will, and even if they do, it's still best for you not to sin against them like they're sinning against you. 
uh, because Jesus died for sins once for all. And so he's been making this argumentation saying, by doing good and by suffering well, you're going to earn a hearing. People are gonna ask, why is it you behave differently? Can you give a reason for the way you live? which we call hope. Can you give a reason for the hope that is in you? That's what he's advocating. And he says, now Jesus uh, died once for all, this once for all atoning sacrifice. It's central to the book of Hebrews, that Jesus died once for all. The Old Testament sacrifices were offered again and again and again, but Christ died once for all to bring us to God. And having been brought to God, we can be humble, we can trust him, we can know that God's gonna protect us and we can suffer well. So we could sum up the theme of First Peter really as being comfort for persecuted and suffering Christians and the need for persecuted Christians to do good to those yep. who are doing evil against them. Right. It gives them a sustaining hope. It gives them a strategy. It's like, I really want to win my abusive master, my unbelieving husband, my mean neighbor. I'd like to win them to Christ. How can I do it? Peter says, do good pray for them, mm. entrust yourself to God, don't sin against them, live an open Christian life, and give a reason for the hope that you have. That's our strategy. All right, then how does verse 18 help us support that point and uh, make that uh, practical in our lives? Okay, everything comes from the atonement, uh, from Jesus's death for us. Christ died for us once for all. Everything comes from that. And he died the uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, the mm -hmm. substitutionary atonement. Yeah. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that exchange. So Jesus, the innocent victim, the innocent suffering servant, died the righteous for us, the unrighteous, and also the persecutors that are surrounding this small group of aliens and strangers. He died for sinners just like that. And so it all comes down to trusting in the atoning work of Christ. Everything comes from that. And in his death, he died for your sins to free you from sin, to set you free from doing evil, to set you free from re repaying insult for insult, to make you a different kind of person. And he has the same power to do that to your persecutors too. So everything comes down to the atoning work of Jesus. And fundamentally, that substitutionary atonement, Jesus died dying once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the goal was to bring us to God. Mm. That's what he came to do. We were far from God. We were aliens and strangers from God. We were rebels in a distant land. Jesus came from heaven to earth to bring us back to our heavenly father. Yeah. So in what ways were we separated maybe more specifically? Because that idea of being brought to God, it seems like there's this gap that's been bridged. How were we separated from God? And why would this be encouraging to these Christians? Yeah, it's purely relational language. We mm. do believe that God is omnipresent. God is equally everywhere. But he himself uses the kind of language of manifestation. Um, I remember reading this in one of Edward's sermons, uh, Heaven is a World of Love. And he says that though God is omnipresent, he revealed himself specifically among the Jewish nation 
out of all the nations on the earth. And he revealed himself more in the city of Jerusalem than any other city in Israel. And he revealed himself more in the temple area than any other place in Jerusalem. And more in the Holy of Holies. He just went concentric circles. This is where God revealed himself and spoke to uh, the Jewish nation in the, in the glory cloud above the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. Mm. That's relational language. Though God is omnipresent, he's saying, here is where I will meet with you. So we in our sins were relationally distant from God. We were far from him. And Jesus came across that distance, that relational distance, uh, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, to bring us back to intimacy with God. So continuing in verse 18, what does it mean being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? And maybe more specifically, should the word spirit be capitalized? What would be the significance if we read it lowercase s spirit versus capitalized spirit? Right. Um, I do advocate it should be capitalized. We're talking about the Holy Spirit because we're going to get to his preaching ministry and Jesus uh, by the Spirit. And I really am linking in to the statement that he um, that he made earlier in First Peter 1 and that he makes in Second Peter 1 mm. about uh, the ministry of the Spirit in the, uh, the scripture writers of old, etc. So we'll get there. Okay. So I, I really would advocate by the Holy Spirit. And the, the crucifixion, he was put to death in the flesh. His body died. His heart stopped beating. He was dead. Legally dead, clinically dead, dead. If Jesus didn't die, then we don't have an atoning sacrifice. He had to die. The wages of sin is death. So he, he was dead. He was put to death in the flesh. But he was made alive by the Spirit. We don't say in the Spirit, made alive in the Spirit. Because I do believe if it were lowercase s, you're talking about Jesus' immaterial nature. Um, his soul or spirit, that kind of thing, which is separated from the body at death. So I don't know what made alive by the spirit lowercase would mean there. Um, we, I think he's talking about the resurrection. Jesus died and rose again. You know, He was put to death in the flesh, but he, he was raised by the spirit. Now, Paul's going to say this exact same thing. If we, if we say, who raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the Father? Did Jesus raise himself from the dead? Or was it by the Spirit? The answer is yes, yes, and yes, or just one big yes. yes. <laughs> the Trinity acts together. Mm. And so we have verses that says the Father raised Jesus. We have verses that say Jesus raised himself up. He had the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it back up again. He raised himself from the dead. And it says uh, in Romans chapter 1, I think verse 7, he was made alive, it says, raised by the Spirit of holiness, the Holy mm. Spirit. Um, so the resurrection there is ascribed to the, the Spirit, and I'm gonna say that Peter is saying the same thing. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised from the dead. So this is the full story, this is the gospel. Mm -hmm. Christ died for our sins once for all, substitutionary atonement, the righteous for the unrighteous. The goal was to bring us to God. He was put to death, actually died, but he was raised again. This is just the gospel. That's beautiful and really helpful for us as well to think, man, if we need a, a one verse summation of the gospel, just come, come in right here to 1 Peter 3.18 and saying, look look at in brief what yes. Christ has done for But you. Peter's not done with the sentence yet. Exactly, so that's, and that's going. where we're headed. So 18 leads us into 19 and it begins with in which, or in uh, my translation, it says, uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So what is this referring to? Okay, so I would advocate if we're going to capitalize the S, um, we would really rather go with a through whom. Um, because, you know, in the Greek, we've got um, masculine pronouns, feminine pronouns, and neuter pronouns. And, and the, the logical choice always for the spirit would be a neuter, like an it, 
Um, but the New Testament grammar uses a he. Um, you know, so I think we'll just go with that in English. Uh, through whom? By the Spirit. He, Jesus, went and preached way, way back a long time ago. So it, he's Jesus. We're focused on Jesus in verse 18. We're focused on the Spirit and Jesus together in verse 19 and following. So we're going to track with the Spirit. It was by the Spirit that Christ rose from the dead, verse 18, and by the Spirit that Jesus preached back in the days of Noah. So I think this is this is what you know I, I want to see. We're looking at a time long, long ago um, when Noah, while the ark was being built. It's a complex sentence. Mm. So let me let me see if I can unfold the sentence. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Um, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, capital S Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Um, also, he meaning Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. So let's table the prison thing for just a moment. Uh, the, the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. So they were disobedient people that Jesus, by the Spirit, preached to. Mm. When did he do that? Um, when God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. There's so many clauses here that make <laughs> comma, the sentence, comma, comma, right. Comma, yeah. So, but the, the central action of part two of the sentence is the preaching, hmm. all right? Who did the preaching? Jesus did it. How did he do it? By the Holy Spirit. When did he do it? When God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah, let's, let's keep it simple. When the ark was being built or in the days of Noah, same thing, you could go at it either way, but if you wanna minimize words, Back in the days of Noah, hmm. Jesus preached. Who did he preach to? Disobedient people. Okay. Now, I could keep going. It's like, well, what about in prison? Uh, the disobedient people in prison. I don't think they were in prison when he was preaching to them. They're in prison now. Mm. So I think that's where the confusion comes. We'll get to the descent to hell in just a moment. Okay. But um, I think the way I understand the sentence is it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus um, preached back in the days of Noah. Now, here we need to look at some other verses that Peter gives us. Let's stay right within Peter on the doctrine of Scripture. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Okay. And um, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12, uh, Peter writes this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which, look at this, the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he, Christ or the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Mm. So we're talking about Isaiah writing Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. You know, or Daniel when he wrote his aspects of, of the coming, you know, Son of Man passage. Daniel didn't understand. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when I spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Old Testament prophets writing their books, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, hmm. were speaking by the Spirit of Christ. Now go to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter 1, again, the doctrine of Scripture, verse 19 through 21, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rise in your hearts. Above all, 
you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Mm -hmm. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Peter 1, he calls him the Spirit of Christ. So this is what I want to say. The Father and the Son speak, spoke in the Old Testament era by the prophets. So the Spirit moved inside them, the Spirit of Christ, so that they spoke. Noah was a prophet. He wasn't a writing prophet, but he was a preaching prophet. Now, the thing about Noah is uh, in 2 Peter 2, uh, he mentions um, Noah. And he says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, etc. If he did not, verse 5, spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. So again, we got Peter's very aware of the wicked, ungodly people during the days of the flood. He didn't spare them. He destroyed them. He, he did not spare the ancient world, but he protected Noah. What does he call him? A preacher of righteousness. I think that's key. It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. So, um, <clears throat> and seven others. So going back to 1 Peter 3, by the Spirit, Jesus went and preached through Noah, mm. the preacher of righteousness. The Spirit came upon Noah, a prophet, and he warned them of the coming judgment. Wow. He was surrounded by persecutors, mockers, yeah. ungodly people, like Peter's audience, mm. see? Peter's audience are a persecuted minority surrounded by hostility, surrounded by mockery or by abuse, like Noah. The spirit of Christ was in them and, and on them, just as he was in Noah and on them. And by the spirit, Noah stood up to their abuse, built the ark, and warned them of the coming flood. They didn't heed the warning, but he warned them. So Jesus by the Spirit went a long time ago in the days of Noah when the ark was being built and preached to them. And now they're in prison. That's, um, they're being held for judgment. They're not in hell because I believe that comes after the second coming of Christ, the sheep and the goats and the lake of fire and all that. Um, you could argue back and forth. What we call intermediate state eschatology is very difficult. It's, it's hard to get real sharp clarity. Yeah. We know they're suffering in some torment, but full suffering comes later, all right? So they're in prison. Therefore, I don't, I reject this as teaching a descent to hell, but we should talk about the descent to hell. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were talking about this even just a moment ago that some Christian confessions teach a descent to hell. Right. How how would you connect this text to that doctrine, and does this passage actually teach that? It seems like you would say no. So how should we think about that right. uh, in light of these verses? Well, I'm just doing uh, I'm doing just um, exegesis right now. We're doing just trying to do good interpretation. Mm -hmm. So I just I, I think it's a leap anyway to go from prison to hell. Um, you could say, not really, it's spirits in prison. So what's a spirit prison but hell? It's like, all right, I get that. Um, I, Peter does talk about, I think, an intermediate place uh, where, where wicked angels are held, the pit in Second Peter. So Tartarus, the pit. So I do believe that there is a, an afterworld punishment in view here. But I deny that, Jesus, that the text is clearly teaching that Jesus is preaching to them while they're in prison, all right? First of all, let's imagine what that's like, okay? Um, Christ dies. He, his, his 
immaterial part, his soul or spirit, is separated from his body. The body's dead on the cross. He is separated. He goes down into the nether regions and preaches to them. What does he preach? Um, we wouldn't imagine he would give them a second chance to get out. That would go. That would be a whole new wing of theology that we don't want to embrace. Some people think that the Old Testament saints were waiting for him to die for them and uh, set them free, get them out of some kind of a, I don't know, a, a, like a, a holding place, yeah. like a county lockup. Mm. You know that they can't really go to heaven until Jesus dies for them. But that's. That doesn't make any sense because Moses and Elijah appeared with, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and Jesus said, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. They're not down in some pit. That, it, it's just not taught. That it all comes from this text and trying to make a square peg fit in a round hole. So I think instead <clears throat> we would have to say that this text is teaching that Jesus went back in the days of Noah to preach. Mm-hmm. Now the creed that you refer to is the Apostles' Creed. And my guess is many of those that hear me have many times said he descended to hell. But if you look at the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of, um, of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. There's a consecutive chronological unfolding. So the descent to hell happens after his death. I'm just saying... The scripture doesn't teach that, mm. or at least it doesn't teach it clearly. And, and so what I would say is, what do you put in a creed? So Wes, what should be put in a creed? And the, the Apostles' Creed is very brief. Yeah. What should we stick in a creed? Well, it seems like it's, it's an abstract or, or a clear, simple statement of what we agree on mm-hmm. uh, about the faith. <clears throat> so right. it seems like it should be the things that we agree on. Everyone agrees faith. on. Yeah. And, and also, I would say it's the things you want to teach as of first importance, your top priority, your first thing. Yeah. So I would call them, by definition, milk. It's just pure, simple, unadulterated, clear teaching. Mm-hmm. of We believe in God who made all things and Jesus who was his son, who lived this life. He was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, lived a sinless life, died, did all these miracles, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again. So frankly, that's what I say in the church. Sometimes I'm one of the only ones silent while everyone around me is saying he descended to hell. Mm. But we need to know the history of the creed. If you look at the history of the Apostles' Creed, the first multiple, multiple centuries, the oldest kind of copies of the creed we have don't have a descent to hell. It pops in at the end of the fourth century under a guy named Rufinus, but then he didn't have another time that he wrote it. He was inconsistent with it. And then it really starts getting used around the year 650. So it was added later. I would say, even if it's true, I wouldn't put it in a creed because it's not clearly taught in the Bible. And I think it's so helpful how you walk through this whole, uh, you know, thought package here that Peter is articulating, right? That, you know, sometimes versification can get us <laughs> in trouble if we just take one verse and we kind of pause there and say, oh, I wonder what this means. It's like, well, that's a whole sentence. So 18 through 20 is really a unit of thought that we shouldn't pick apart without looking at it as, yeah, as a whole. It's a complex it sentence. Um, another thing, just an aside here, a little sidebar. I think it's interesting that Peter in 2 Peter 3 talks about Paul writing some things that are difficult to understand, <laughs> which ignorant and unpeople distort mm. as they do the other scriptures. I'm like, yeah, Peter, um, here's a text. 
(laughs) that is hard to understand and that I believe people Mm. have distorted. Mm. I don't think this is teaching in Descent to Hell. I think this is teaching about Jesus's pre-incarnate preaching ministry, which he openly teaches in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, that the spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets was proclaiming his suffering and his his glory. And he says openly in 2 Peter 1 that prophecy came about when the Spirit came on the prophets and they wrote these things. That's a more, that's actually an exciting doctrine of the inspiration authority of Scripture and the activity of the triune God in crafting the Scripture. And it fits the context here, which is a suffering, persecuted minority surrounded by a hostile audience Mm. being judged in the end by God. And in effect, he's saying, don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Be kind and compassionate. Realize these people are under the judgment of God. How could you add to that at all? So just be kind and loving and pray for them that they'll escape the judgment of God. Because look what happened to the disobedient spirits or disobedient people when the ark was being built. Only eight people were saved. That's the point that Peter's making here. Yeah. So before we move on from verse 20, there's a couple more questions that I have would love to hear your thoughts so what does verse 20 teach us about the patience of god it's a word in there that we haven't talked much about but what does verse 20 teach us about the patience of sure. god so god god doesn't bring judgment right away even on wicked people he mm-hmm. gives them he, he you know we see this in romans 9 yeah. why were the reprobate ever made mm-hmm. why did god knit together people who will end up in hell mm-hmm. um one of the things you know what paul says there in romans 9 is what if god choosing to show us his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to us, the objects of mercy? So the reason everyone exists, both the reprobate and the elect, Mm -hmm. is to display the attributes of God. What do the reprobate display? They display God's power, wrath, and patience. Mm. God is very patient with wicked people. He gives them lots and lots of opportunities to repent. And so God was waiting patiently during the time the ark was being built. Now, we don't know how long that is. Some scholars believe it took 120 years because of the statement made in Genesis 6, my spirit will not strive with man forever. His days will be 120 years. But he doesn't say that's how long it's going to take the ark to be built. We don't really know how long the ark took uh, or even what the statement his days will be 120 years. Is that how long people will live after the flood? Because the age of, of people come, came way down, not to 120 years, but um, Abraham lived 175 years, et cetera, but it came down. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's interpretation. What are the 120 years? In any case, it took a long time to build the ark and God waited. And in that time, Noah was, as we see in 2 Peter, a preacher of righteousness. So God's waiting patiently. So let's apply it to Peter's audience. They are aliens and strangers. They're a persecuted minority. They're surrounded by hostile people, wicked masters, unbelieving husbands, Mm. uh, you know, people who just hate them. Peter's counseling them to do good, to pray for them, to live their Christian lives, to live openly, trusting in God, to do the right thing and wait for God and entrust themselves to God. And so God is waiting patiently for them too. Maybe some of them will repent. Yeah, it's amazing. God does the right thing at the right time. What an encouragement to those who are in that sojourning, exilic time between now and when they will uh, be with God. Yeah, one, one more thing though, we should never presume on the patience of God. We should not provoke him Mm. because there are examples of instant death as well. Nadab and Abihu, um, King Herod in the book of Acts was immediately struck down by an angel of the Lord and was eaten by worms and Mm. died immediately. 
Whereas other times God waits more patiently. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, I think he worked savingly and effectively in transforming his heart. Um, but we should never presume on the great patience of God. We should repent as soon as we're aware. Uh, unbelievers, as soon as they hear the gospel and understand its truth, should repent. Now, that's not all that verse 20, or really mm -hmm. 20 and 21 are meant to display. Peter now makes a connection uh, to baptism, to yeah. water baptism. What a sentence. <laughs> like, Peter, Peter's just, <laughs> he's going in on a lot of significant topics for us to uh, to just... Uh, unpack and unfold here, but he makes this connection uh, to water baptism. How is the salvation of Noah's family in the midst of ju God's judgment an incredible picture of salvation? And talk a little bit about baptism. Okay, so now we have to guard against a different error here, and that is the error of baptismal regeneration, the, the doctrine that without water baptism we cannot be saved. That is not true. Silver bullet on that is uh, 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That statement would be meaningless and weird if water baptism were required for salvation. So water doesn't save you. Really, baptism doesn't save you. But he's, he's linking it to the water. And he's saying, you know, the norm is, the norm is for when someone repents and becomes a Christian, they get water baptized, you know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, water baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and then taught to obey everything. So it's in a beginning ordinance that happens at the beginning of the Christian life. And really, repentance and faith in Jesus saves you. But water baptism symbolizes that repentance and, and faith in Christ. So that's what he means. That baptism saves you. And it's, it's not some physical removal of dirt from the body. It's not the actual getting wet. But it saves you, he says, um, by the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And it saves you by the work of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And he went up to heaven and he's at God's right hand interceding, he doesn't say that, but interceding for you. Basically, your faith in Christ is what saves you, but water baptism symbolizes that. And isn't it interesting that the, that, the, that the ark is in the middle of a bunch of water? And so there's that link of water. Noah's ark was in the water, and water kind of saves you now, not in a baptismal regeneration sense, but symbolizing your good conscience yeah. and faith in Christ, yeah. so that's the argument. And I think identity with Christ in obedience, mm -hmm. and then that picture of burial and resurrection that we right. talk about even uh, here uh, during a baptism. Right, I wanna say one more thing. It's also a, a picture of outside of Christ, there is no salvation. So the ark is the was the only place that air-breathing animals or humans could live. And so there is no other, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. So the ark pictures Christ alone as Savior. So that picture of Christ alone as Savior really leads us into this final verse, verse 22. What does verse 22 teach us about Christ and what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage today? So we're following Christ and Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit. So by the spirit, uh, he was raised from the dead. Then what? Well, the Bible teaches that he ascended to heaven. And the book of Hebrews says he has gone through the heavens. Mm. So the heavens are created realms. Um, like you could see third heaven. You've got, you've got the lower heavens, which we consider the, the atmosphere, the sky. You've got the upper heavens, which we would call outer space where the stars are. And then the heaven above, the third heavens. Um, we could imagine realms above that, but they're speculative. So higher and higher realms of spiritual dimensions. Christ went through all that. 
He is above the heavens. Heaven, even the highest heavens can't contain you, Solomon said. So Jesus is um, at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So mm. again, who is Peter writing to? A persecuted minority. They're being crushed. They're being opposed. Governors. I didn't mention them, but wicked governors who don't believe. Mm-hmm. Masters who don't believe. Husbands who don't believe. They're in a hostile environment. But listen, Jesus is sovereign over everything. Yeah. He's ruling over everything, and he will, in the end, in his second coming, he will set up a kingdom which will be glorious and will never end. So he's urging the persecuted minority of Christians to look to Christ at the right hand of God, doesn't say it, but Hebrews does, interceding for us, praying for us, will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. With the temptation, we'll make a way of escape. He is filtering everything. He's ruling. Trust him. Mm. And what a powerful picture for them to receive, right? With all things subjected to Christ and and they themselves also subject to him, the one who suffered for their sins. Amen. Well, this has been episode seven in the book of 1 Peter. And we want to invite you to join us next time for episode eight entitled Living for God as the End of All Things Draws Near, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter four, verses one through 11. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.